0: Good morning, Grace Church. Uh, Kids, at this time, you're invited to head on down to kids' worship. And uh, I invite the rest of us to open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And as you're doing that, I just wanna check with the back to make sure that the computer did not freeze up. Am I good to go on slides? Can you give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Thumbs down. All right, you just give me a thumbs up when they're there and I'll catch up to you. Um, And we'll just go without slides for now. Uh, Good morning. Um, Mark chapter 8 is where we are in our study of Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 8 is where I encourage you to turn. And um, we've officially reached the halfway point in our study of Mark's gospel. It only took us eight months, uh, but we're there. And uh, we've got another eight chapters to go. We're going to finish up chapter eight today as we're looking at verses 22 all the way to chapter nine, verse one. So let me read it for you. I encourage you to have your Bible open. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a couple in front of, your, uh, in front of the row there. You can grab and, and take a look at the text for yourself or pull it up on your phone. But let me read it for us. This is Mark chapter eight, starting at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it is come with power. Father, we pray with our Bibles open that you would give us understanding, that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things here in these words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are important questions in life that all of us at one time or another have to answer. Uh, Important questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, some of you have been grown up for a long time now, and you're still asking that question. Uh, others of us uh, have never grown up. Um, other questions like, who will you marry? Will you marry? Uh, how about, where will you live? Or where will you work? What skills and hobbies will you pursue? We could, uh, the list could go on and on and on of all the important questions in life that we have to answer. But this morning, Jesus poses for us what I think is probably the most important question we will ever answer in our entire lives, the most fundamental question of all time. In verse 29, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? The most important question you will ever answer in your entire life is the question, who is Jesus. The answer to that question is a life-altering one, a life-transforming one. It changes everything. And Mark, in his gospel, up to this point, from chapter 1 to where we are now in chapter 8, he has been preparing us, laying the ground for us to answer that question. This really is sort of a mountain peak, a climactic moment in the way that he's writing his gospel. This is, this is a, a transition point in his gospel where the disciples up to this point have been watching Jesus and his life, listening to his teaching, and now they are going to answer this all-important question, who do you say that I am? Now, many have misidentified Jesus up to this point in Mark's gospel. The Pharisees, the scribes, even the disciples, as we saw last week, it's not quite clicking for them who Jesus is, but now, here, in this moment, it finally clicks, and they are able to confess that he is the Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Now, this section begins with an account of Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida. If you take a look at verse 22, it begins with uh, Jesus going into Bethsaida and the, the, the group there brings to him a blind man asking him to heal him. And just as Jesus has done... Uh, Time and time again, he is about to uh, help this man. Now, at at first sight, we may look at this and wonder, why in the world uh, did Mark put this in here about this blind man um, in this section of uh, this gospel? And really, Mark has been very intentional about how he is putting these accounts together. Because if you remember last week, if you take a look at verse 18, last week, Jesus was addressing the disciples' spiritual blindness, their spiritual blindness. In verse 18, he asked them the question, having eyes, do you not see? And now, Mark is going to show us an account where Jesus heals a man of his physical blindness, And he's going to end this account by showing that the the disciples' spiritual blindness is about to be healed. So let's take a look at this account. In verse 22, the blind man is brought to Jesus. And in verse 23, as he always does with these encounters, he deals personally with this man. Uh, I was very struck this week by the tenderness of Jesus with this man. In verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand. He took this man's hand, gently led him out of the village, not to make a spectacle of this man's healing, but to deal with him personally, tenderly, gently. Now I just have to wonder what was their conversation on the way out of the village? Was Jesus asking him questions about his life, about his experience of, of living in blindness? And I wonder what the, what the blind man was thinking as, as he was being led by the hand by this Jesus who he really didn't know. Was he afraid? Was he unsettled? What was about to happen? It's often the case that when Jesus first takes us by the hand, it can be a little unsettling at times. But Jesus in verse 23, he does this strange thing. When he finally gets him out of the village, it says that he had spit on the man's eyes. Now, I've read a lot this week about what this spitting is all about, and I have to be honest with you, I have no idea what is going on here. I don't know why Jesus spits on his eyes. There's a lot of different opinions. I leave that to you to study on your own and determine why he did that. It's not really the main point of the, uh, the account here. The main point is not the spitting, but the seeing. That is the main point. But he spits on the man's eyes, and he lays his hands on him, and he asks him, do you see anything? What does the blind man reply in verse 24? In 24, he looks, and his vision is still a little blurry. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. The healing hasn't quite settled in fully yet. He's only half recovered from his blindness. Verse 25, Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again. and The man opens his eyes, and his sight is restored completely. He sees everything clearly. Now, the question that may come into our minds is, was this man's blindness too much to handle for Jesus to do it in just one shot? Was this man's blindness too difficult for Jesus that it took two attempts to finally heal him? of course, the answer to that is no. Jesus, up to this point in the gospel, has healed people of much worse things than just blindness. Remember the man who had a legion of demons, and with just one word and one instant, the man was healed. So it must be, then, that Jesus is intentionally making this man uh, to be able to see in steps, doing his healing in a process. Why is he doing this? I think what Jesus is doing here is teaching a lesson through the healing of the man's physical blindness to teach us how he often heals us of our spiritual blindness, the blindness of our hearts. That oftentimes he does not do this in an immediate way, but he works and draws us to himself through a process by degrees. What we really see first is how Christians believe. How do we get to the point where our hearts are enabled to see Jesus and the truth of who he is and come to faith and trust in him? How does that happen? Jesus opens the eyes of our dead blind hearts to be able to believe. And he does it in his own time and in his own way. This two-step healing process is pointing to his spiritual process of bringing us to saving faith, and also, once we have arrived at saving faith, how he then matures us in our faith. It's a process. He does it by degrees. The disciples have been an example of this already in the Gospels, haven't they? When they first start out their journey with Jesus, they don't understand anything. They can't see Jesus clearly at all. And then halfway through the gospel, they they sort of half see. They're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And only by the end of the gospel have their eyes been clearly opened to see Jesus for who he is. And isn't that the same with us? Jesus works in different ways for different individuals. Some of us, he opened up our hearts uh, our hearts to see him clearly when we were very young. Others of us, he opened up our hearts to see him clearly and to come to saving faith when we were older. Some of us, when we came to faith, we shot up into maturity quite quickly. Others of us, it's been a slow process, very slow process of understanding and growing. I was struck by Kent Hughes and his commentary this week, very helpful insight when he said, we have to be careful how we think about how Jesus is working in other people's lives. He wrote, we sometimes make our experience of how we came to faith normative for others. In fact, it is not our experience that is normative, but our belief in that we rest Our faith in Christ alone, trusting him for salvation. We must realize that the experience of the number of God's touch points on our lives may vary. But what remains the same for every person is his grace. His grace coming upon us in our hearts. Because after all, could the blind man do anything on his own to make him see? No. And could we? and the deadness of our hearts, and the blindness and hardness of our hearts do anything to enable us to be able to see the truth of Christ? No. Jesus, by his grace, had to open up our hearts to see so that we might believe. That's why we sing amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart To fear, I think this uh, cautions us to keep us from judging one another when we look at uh, the different degrees in which we are in our Christian maturity, but it also gives us hope that we not lose heart for our loved ones who are not yet saved, who do not yet see their need for Christ. Maybe you have a loved one and you look at them and you think, well, man, I was already saved at that point in my life. I had already trusted. Maybe it's too late for them. It's never too late. Or maybe you have children or grandchildren who are saved, but it doesn't look as if they are growing the way that you would hope that they are. Well, we trust that Jesus is working in his own way, in his own timing. How do Christians believe? Jesus, through his process, opens the eyes of our hearts to believe. Well, he deals with this man's uh, physical blindness. Now he is about to deal with their spiritual blindness. Take a look at verse 27. In verse 27, he leaves Bethsaida and he goes on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road trip, he asks them a question. Uh, They're walking along the road, just like you may be driving with your friends or your family on a road trip, and you ask a question to generate discussion. He's about to do that here in verse 27. And his question to the disciples is Who do people say that I am? What does everyone think about me? Is essentially what he says. And the disciples reply in verse 28, giving all the opinions of the day. Some said that he's John the Baptist, that somehow John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and Jesus is John, risen from the dead. Others say Elijah, there was the great promise in the Old Testament that Elijah would come, and they thought maybe he was the fulfillment of that. Others say he's just another one of the prophets, that God rose up. But then Jesus asked the $5 million question in verse 29, and he asked them, But who do you, who do you say that I am? Do you see the wisdom of what Jesus is doing here with the disciples? He gets them to lay out on the table all the opinions of other people, get it all out there. And then, finally, he has them address the one opinion that really matters for them, the opinion that Jesus is actually really interested in. What do they believe about who Jesus is? That is the most fundamental question that any of us can answer. What do we believe about Jesus? In our day, there's a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. Some think he never existed. Some think he was just a good teacher. Others think that uh, he was just a good moral example. Others think that he was a complete nutcase. There's a lot of opinions. But the opinion that matters at the end of the day for you, the one that Christ is most concerned about in your heart, is not what your friends say or what your family believes or what even this church believes, but what do you believe about Jesus? I heard a story of uh, Paul Simon recently. Do we have any Paul Simon fans in the room? Uh, Still not enough hands. In the first service, there was like one hand went up. People, you need to work on musical taste. Um, He was... uh, there's a story that goes that he read a, um, he was reading a Time magazine back in the 70s, and Time magazine was doing an article on John Stott, who was a famous evangelist, apologist, theologian, pastor in the mid-1900s. And Time magazine was saying that John Stott was one of the most influential men of the 20th century. Now, Paul Simon, being a Jewish atheist... Uh, got a little worked up about this article and wanted to be able to have an audience with John Stott. So Paul Simon, when you're Paul Simon, you get to meet whoever you want to meet. So he called his agent and he said, I'd like you to arrange a meeting with John Stott. So John Stott very graciously uh, received the invitation and invited him over to his parsonage to share a meal with Paul Simon. So they had dinner together, they caught up, uh, understood where each other was coming from, and then after dinner, the spiritual conversation took place. And as the story goes, Paul Simon apparently lit into John Stott right off the bat about I disagree with this and I have a problem with this in the Bible and what this says and what this says and what this says. And he let him talk and then finally John Stott just very gently said hey Paul, we could spend a lot of time talking about all these different issues in the Bible. But might I suggest that our time will be best spent by you Understanding and coming to a clear conviction about who the person of Jesus of Nazareth is. Because that is really the foundation of all Christianity. And when you answer that question, the Bible will either fall into place for you or it will fall out of place for you. That is the crux. Who is Jesus is the most fundamental question. Well, Peter gets the answer correct in verse 29. He answers and he says, You are the Christ. What we see next is what Christians believe. Jesus is the Christ who suffered for sinners. Peter's great confession here is the foundation of the entire church, the foundation of the entire faith. Paul writes in uh, Ephesians saying that the church is founded on the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. You pull Christ out of the equation, the whole thing falls apart. You don't have Christianity. And what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? It means that he is the promised Messiah, the chosen one that God had prophesied about in the Old Testament, that he said he would send into the world the God-man who would come to redeem his people and to gather for himself a kingdom that would be comprised of all nations. The whole world would come under his dominion. And now the disciples finally see exactly who this Jesus is. And now that they see clearly, Jesus is going to begin clarifying for them what sort of Christ is he? If he is the Christ, what sort of Christ is he? Take a look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die. This would have been completely unthinkable to the disciples absolutely mind-boggling to the disciples, because the Jewish expectation of who the Son of Man was, was not someone who would suffer, but someone who would conquer. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, God had said that this Son of Man would be this. It said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Does that sound like a sufferer? Does that sound like someone who will be rejected? Does that sound like someone who will ultimately be defeated? Well, the disciples are so worked up by this that actually Peter himself in verse 32 takes Jesus aside and begins rebuking Jesus. I just wonder what he said to Jesus. Was it How dare you say those things about the Son of Man? Don't you know that the Son of Man, he's not meant to die and be rejected. He's meant to conquer. He's meant to to, to bring everyone into subjection. He begins rebuking him. But what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, in verse 33, rebukes Peter. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your minds on the things of God but on the things of man. The cross is how God thinks. And man, as we read in 1 Corinthians, struggles to understand why God would act in this way. This is the great mystery of the gospel, that God brought the Christ into the world not to conquer, not to condemn, but actually to die, to die for the sake of a world that rejected him, that defied him, that rebelled against him. Out of his grace and his mercy, he would do this. And notice in verse 31, it says that he taught them that the son of man must suffer. The Son of Man would come into the world and would have to undergo suffering because sin needed to be paid for. My sin is so evil. My sin is so atrocious. My sin is so wicked that God, being a just God and being a holy God, cannot just sweep it under the rug, cannot just choose to overlook it, But in his justice, he has to judge it. He has to make sure that it is paid for. But in his grace and mercy, his plan was that Christ would come and pay the penalty for us. Taking on our sin, the Holy One, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, giving himself up. For the lowly, dejected sinners. Oh, the mystery of the cross that God should suffer for the lost. In the mystery of his plan, God ordained that Jesus would only gain the crown by enduring the cross. No cross, no crown. And he is about to show us now that it is the same for us. No cross... No crown. What we see next is what Christians do. What Christians do. Take a look at verse 34. In verse 34, uh, Jesus clarifies for the disciples what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus, what it means to place your faith in Christ, to confess that He is the Christ. True followers of Jesus will prove the genuineness of their faith by their actions. They will prove the genuineness of their trust in him and their confession of him by the fruit of their life. What what do Christians do? Uh, The first thing Jesus says in verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. True, genuine Christians are people who are self-denying. What do we deny ourselves? Well, we deny ourselves our sinful desires, our sinful cravings, our sinful pleasures. Knowing that we have been saved from sin and that Jesus came and suffered for our sin, it is unthinkable to us that we would continue to walk in our sin. But we have a heart that loves repentance and turns away from sin and turns towards righteousness that with all our heart we seek to be people of obedience. It should be obvious to the onlooking world when they look at a genuine Christian that the Christian is someone who is clearly denying themselves, that in some way there is shackles on their hands and there are fences on their heart to keep them from walking in the old sinful flesh. We deny ourselves. And number two, Jesus says, genuine Christians take up their cross and follow him, verse 34. Take up his cross and follow him. uh, Christians are those who are cross Bearing people. Now, we have to be clear when we talk about this, what we mean by taking up your cross, because we hear people today say things like, oh, that's just my cross to bear, and they're just talking about little inconveniences in life or things that annoy them. What is Jesus talking about when he's talking about taking up our cross? Jesus is talking specifically about ridicule that we receive from the world because we are trying to follow Him. He clarifies that for us in verse 35. If you take a look at it, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Cross-bearing is ridicule and hardship and persecution that we face because we are seeking to follow Jesus. So, taking up your cross is not just bearing with your annoying coworkers. Uh, Anyone can do that. None of you have any annoying coworkers, I'm sure. No. No, taking up your cross is when you are treated differently by your coworkers than everyone else in the workplace because of your commitments to Jesus. Uh, Taking up your cross is not just showing patience to your weird relatives. Anyone can do that. No, taking up your cross is when your relatives disinvite you to the family gatherings, when they argue with you because you're seeking to honor Jesus. Taking up your cross is when all your friends are going out to go see that movie, but you are staying home and you're not going because the movie that they are going to see is one that a Christian should not see. And while they're enjoying their time together, they talk about you behind their back and they poke fun at you. Uh, Taking up your cross is when making friends is difficult because of your biblical commitments and when the friendships that you have are hard to maintain because you just can't help but evangelize to them out of your love and concern that they too might be saved. Taking up your cross is when you're labeled as bigoted, a hater, judgmental, all those things simply for seeking to honor Jesus. That is what taking up your cross looks like. And I was struck this week, I never noticed this before, but in verse 34, Jesus says that a Christian takes up his cross. Christians take up their cross. You have a cross that Christ has ordained for you that is yours alone, that you alone can carry and take up. It is a cross that is specifically designed for your discipleship with Jesus, and it's different from everyone else's. You have particular shame that you will carry. You have particular ridicule that you will endure. You have particular persecution that you will go through. You have particular hardship. You have particular trial that will be specific to you and different from everyone else in your walk with Jesus. We ought not to look at each other and wonder, well, whose cross is bigger, whose cross is smaller. We just need to recognize that all of us have a cross, and it's different from one another, and we need to help each other in bearing one another up. Christians are those who face hardship and ridicule, and that is because we want to follow him. Jesus is more important to us than our contentment, than our comfort even our friendships. In verse 38, Jesus tells us what kind of world we're living in. In verse 38, he calls this world an adulterous and sinful generation. Those who seek to follow him will get pushback. Last week, uh, some of us were at a pastor's conference. And we were introduced to a poem that was written by Amy Carmichael. How many of you are familiar with Amy Carmichael and her story? She was a missionary in India. Uh, I didn't know that she was a poet, um, but she was quite a good poet. And in this poem, uh, she writes from the perspective of Jesus. And it's as if Jesus is looking at one of his followers who it, it doesn't seem like they have faced any hardship for his sake. And this is the poem she, she writes from the perspective of Jesus. She writes, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded By the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Friend, you look at your life, I look at my life. Could I have followed far if I have no wound nor scar? We used to swap scar stories when we were little, didn't we? Oh, I got this one from falling off the bike. Ah, I got this one from falling out of the tree. I got this one because I was wrestling with the dog too hard. Christians are those who can swap scar stories. They may not be visible scars, but they're heart scars. Stories of how we were scarred for our faithfulness to Jesus. Hast thou no scar? Have we left our cross behind at some point along the way and it's time to take it up again? so that we might follow him as we deny ourselves and seek to be faithful. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to take up our cross, to bear uh, with scars and wounds? Jesus asks us a simple question, verse 36, and with this we'll close. Is it worth it? Jesus asks us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul we can either have this world and all of its stuff momentary light pleasure or we can aim for eternal glory eternal joy eternal peace with no burden with no admixture of sorrow and trial we can take up our cross for a light momentary lifetime in order That we might gain eternal peace and joy. Friends, who do you say that Jesus is? Have the eyes of your heart been opened to see that he is the Christ? And if you do confess that he is Lord, that he is the Christ, hast thou no scar? Let us together deny ourselves. Take up our cross and choose to follow him. I have decided to follow Jesus, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Father, give us grace. We're so thankful that in your divine plan, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would come into this world. Not to decimate this world, but to shed grace and mercy, to actually serve this evil world, serve us in our defiance and our rebellion, that He would take on our sin, our wickedness, that He would take up His own cross, lay His own life down, so that the sinner might be saved. We're so thankful for the work that you do in our lives and drawing us to Yourself. And we're thankful. As we look back and we see the people, the circumstances that you placed in our life that drew us to you, we pray for those here this morning who have yet to see, yet to trust, yet to believe that you are indeed the Christ. We pray that your grace would descend and that you would open up their hearts to truly trust in him. And for all of us here, Father... We pray that you would give us great grace, great strength, great perseverance to deny ourselves, to not be those who walk in sin, but seek to overcome temptation and seek to uh, kill our sin in order that we might walk in faithfulness and in righteousness. And Lord, help us to see what the cross is that we have to bear. Give us strength and let us help each other in our cross-bearing that we might be truly followers of Jesus as we pray in his name, amen.